call an audible. We don't have to record this. I think everyone would be blessed by that. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, we will be in Ezekiel chapter 3 for tonight. We are in Ezekiel chapter 3, and we will be in verse 16 through tr- verse, uh, verse tr- uh, 27 for this evening. We will read the text and pray that God's blessing would be upon us. So let's read Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 16 to 27. Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 16. At the end of the seven days, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way, in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his sin, for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity. But you will have delivered your soul. Again, if a righteous righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits an injustice, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because you have not warned him, he shall die for his sin. And his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. And if you warn the righteous person not to sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live, because he took warning, and you will have delivered your soul. And the hand of the Lord was upon me there, and he said to me, Arise, go into the valley, and there I will speak with you. So I arose and went out into the valley. And behold, the glory of the Lord stood there, like the glory that I had seen by the Chabar Canal. And I fell on my face. But the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And He spoke with me and said to me, Go, shut yourself within your house. And you, O son of man, behold, cords will be placed upon you. And you shall be bound with them, so that you cannot go out among the people. And I will make your tongue to cling to the roof of your mouth so that you may be mute and unable to reprove them, for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, He who will hear, let him hear, and he who will refuse to hear, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for this passage, and Lord, we thank You for this time in which we can come to understand it, to explain it, and to apply it. Lord, we do ask, as Your man of God has just uh, pleaded, that the Spirit of God be amongst, amongst us and amongst all other gospel churches, that He work in, within our hearts to convict us of our sin and turn to the living God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Help us, we pray. Amen. What we have just read is the essential nature of Ezekiel's ministry of the Word. This short, this short section is the bookend to Ezekiel's call as a prophet and also sets the scene for what the coming years of Ezekiel's ministry will look like. 
And it's important to note that great, amount of t- great amounts of time will pass from chapters 4 to 24, though we will not always be notified of that. From chapters 4 to 24, we will see the, Lord con- the Lord's continued indictment against Israel. And in these chapters, we will see many oracles strung together. But this does not mean that they were all proclaimed or revealed at the same time. If you're anything like me, it's easy for us to get lost in these large blocks of text. And so our sense of time gets away from us. But we should have in the back of our minds that as we read these passages, that years are passing by. So our passage today almost acts as an introductory note, a summarizing note concerning Ezekiel's ministry over the next six years. His ministry would be one characterized as a watchman over Israel proclaiming the judgments of God as God revealed them. With this said, our main focus tonight will be on Ezekiel's word ministry. This evening, I want us to parse out the various actors at play in Ezekiel's ministry of the word. To summarize what we'll see tonight, the ministry of the word is the responsibility of men called by God to serve the people of God in proclaiming the word of God. So with this in mind, I want us to note that there are three basic actors in Ezekiel's ministry of the Word, as it is with anyone's ministry of the Word. We can summarize these actors in three points. The servant, the served, and the sovereign. These will be our three main points for this evening. So let's begin. The servant, point number one, the servant. Last week... We ended with Yahweh departing from Ezekiel's presence. Remember that God left Ezekiel as a king leaves to prepare his army, leaves for uh, leaves to prepare his army for war. And Ezekiel has now been commissioned to the terrifying task of proclaiming God's judgment to Israel. After this vision, Ezekiel sat overwhelmed for seven whole days. And we pick back up after this terrifying encounter in verse 16. And at the end of the seven days, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them a warning from me. Note that after this week period, it was not the vision of the Lord, but it was the word of the Lord that Ezekiel was hearing. At this point, Ezekiel is only hearing God speak, but he's not seeing him in the vision. But more to the point, God describes Ezekiel in his new role as a prophet of the Lord. In verse 17, God calls Ezekiel a watchman. A watchman. Simply put, a watchman was a soldier who would be positioned at a high place, and he would watch for oncoming threats against his people or his city. He would be the first alarm for any impending doom that would come toward the people. The Lord unfolds what Ezekiel's watchman position would entail, what his job description would be. He says to him, Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them a warning from me. So we are to see that God would speak and Ezekiel would serve as the servant of God, as the prophet of God, as the watchman, He would serve as the vessel to bring God's word to God's people. So this watchman's position uh, would place certain responsibilities upon Ezekiel as the prophet of God. For example, in verses 18 and 21, we read this. And notice the the language, the switching prepositions, uh, the I's and me's. 
and thems. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to the wicked for the for his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his sin, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked and he does not and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Again, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because you have not warned him, he shall die for his sin, and his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will, I will require at your hand. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live, because he took warning. And you will have delivered your soul. We have two groups here, ultimately, that Ezekiel is speaking to. The righteous or the unrighteous, the wicked. In verse 18, God speaks directly to the people. Uh, to the, people. the wicked in this case. It says, I, if I say to the wicked, right? Verse 18, very first words, if I say to the wicked. But notice... It is Ezekiel's responsibility as the watchman to communicate that message to Israel. If I speak to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, dot, 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 his blood I will require at, his, at your hand. The same is true for the righteous person who may fall into sin. In verse 20, God says to Ezekiel, because you have not warned him, the righteous man, his blood I will require at your hand. The phrase blood required at your hand is legal terminology for being held accountable for murder or manslaughter. And the legal penalty for this sin was death. Ezekiel was therefore duty-bound by his own life to preach God's message to Israel. However, if Ezekiel is faithful to present God's message both to the righteous and the unrighteous, God would not hold Ezekiel responsible for their fate. Twice God says to Ezekiel that he would have delivered his soul, meaning that Ezekiel would be free from any guilt if he proclaimed the warning, if he was faithful to his word ministry. Though the people would still be accountable for how they responded, Ezekiel would not be liable. He would have done his duty as a watchman. With this in mind, brothers, we should note that there is something paradox, paradoxical to Yahweh, establishing Ezekiel as a watchman for Israel. From what we've seen in prior weeks, God was in, in opposition to this rebellious house, to rebellious Israel. He was actively against Israel. As we said, he was coming to bring judgment upon them as a king destroys his opponent in war. It, Yet God still places Ezekiel as a prophet to warn of his coming judgment so that the people would be prepared. In verses 16 to 22, Yahweh is very clear with his intentions. Though he stands as the opposing military force against Israel, he still wants his people to be warned about his judgment. So he's the opposing force, but he's letting in his enemy to know his plans. What do we, how do we make sense of this? Why does it seem that God is being double-minded here? On the one hand, he's promising to destroy Israel, Israel, but he wants to warn them. What's going on? 
Well, I believe the answer lies to God's promises made in the Old Covenant. In Ezekiel chapter 4 to 24, Yahweh's purpose is to judge Israel for their sin. This must be clear. God's purpose is to judge Israel for their sin, for their unrighteousness, for their wickedness. But his judgment was not an end to itself, brothers and sisters. God's judgment, this is the key point, God's judgment is not an end to itself. Yahweh wants His people to turn from their sin. Through cursing and judgment, God wants to remove the corrupting and sinful influence from His covenant people. And this should be no surprise to us. Yahweh explicitly states this in the covenant curses curses and blessings of the Old Covenant. For example, this is just one instance. In the concluding section of blessings and curses of the Old Covenant, Moses writes this in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 and 3. You don't have to turn there, but if you like, please take note. Deuteronomy 30, chapter, uh, verses, chapter 30, verses 1 to 3. This is Moses speaking. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, Israel, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey His voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. From this passage, we should understand that Israel would be under the covenant curse since they were in exile. They were in foreign lands. But Israel was experiencing only the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the covenant curses. Exile was not the only curse. The next 20 chapters will show us this in gritty, horrible detail. However, but none of God's old covenant curses would completely obliterate the promise made in Deuteronomy 30 of a chosen remnant of God, a remnant chosen of God of Israel to repent from their sins. Yes, the curses would afflict the people, and some would die horribly in the process, rightfully and justly so. However, God's promise in judgment was that people would, as Deuteronomy 30 so plainly states it, return to the Lord. By seeing the curses come to life, Israel was to remember the covenant that they made with Yahweh, and this acted as a call to repent. And this is vital to understand, brothers. It's very easy to paint God as this Godzilla-like monster destroying all in His path. Many people believe this. But that's not the picture. God's not this gorilla monster, Godzilla monster coming through. Rather, we are to see that we have the covenant Lord upholding His Word to bring curses upon a covenant-breaking, a covenant-breaking people who should know better, yes. But at the same time, we have a loving and faithful covenant Lord upholding His Word to save His repentant people after being afflicted for their sins. This is something that God clearly states in His Word, that He would afflict His people for their sins but that this would be the means by which He calls them back to Him. So with all this in place, brothers, 
we can better understand Ezekiel's word ministry. Ezekiel will act as a covenant lawyer. By establishing Ezekiel as a watchman to warn the people, Ezekiel serves to bring the message of repentance as promised in the Old Covenant. Judgment would be the primary content of Ezekiel's message. It would be terrifying. But this content, the lamentation, the misery, the woe, this content would serve to move his audience to repentance and recall the covenant promises. Through Ezekiel's ministry, God's people could understand what was happening to them and how they should appropriately respond. Without Ezekiel's ministry, Israel would be lost in the turmoil of covenant curses. They wouldn't be prompted to recall their covenant with Yahweh. But through Ezekiel's ministry, through his faithful service, through him being a covenant lawyer, the Lord is providing Israel a way of understanding their affliction and reminding them, uh, reminding them of the hope of restoration through repentance. Therefore, Ezekiel's ministry was the prescribed covenantal means to lead Israel to repentance and to the hope of restoration. Yes, judgment, but judgment leading to repentance. Brothers, this paradigm of proclaiming judgment leading to repentance is still the paradigm for the new covenant church. In fact, judgment leading to repentance is part and parcel of the gospel message. For example, Christ himself proclaimed this in Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. For Christians, we get excited when we hear the kingdom of God is at hand, right? It gets us jacked, right? But we need to remember, this is not a happy message for sinful rebels. For those who love their sin and delight in the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of God stands in opposition to them. The kingdom of God came to destroy the works and the power of Satan's sinful dominion. So when we hear kingdom of God, we should hear the holy kingdom that will judge sin, Satan, and this world. And for sinners who hear the warning of God's coming judgment, of God's coming kingdom... This should not prompt us to navel-gazing. This shouldn't prompt us to wallow in pity. No, just as Ezekiel was sent by God into enemy territory, as we call it. As he was sent into enemy territory among the Israelites to preach repentance, Jesus came in to lead us to repentance. Jesus took on the role of servant to proclaim God's message of repentance and the gospel. Again, like Ezekiel, Jesus didn't proclaim the message of the kingdom of God so that people wouldn't know what to do with the message. Jesus is a very good messenger. He's a very good prophet. He's a very good servant. He tells us exactly his intentions. Jesus came to fulfill the promise truly in Deuteronomy chapter 30. He came to preach the kingdom of God so that sinners might repent from their sins and turn to the living God. So then when sinners heed the message of the gospel, we are responding to the warning of God's coming judgment and our need to repent from our sins. And just as in Ezekiel's day, when we heed that warning, we take hope. 
We take hope in the promised restoration of God. Brothers, this is why the gospel is so amazing. The one, the king and his kingdom, the one that sinners once opposed has now become their hope. Even though we were His enemies, deserving of His judgment, our God's purpose is to call us to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. To use a phrase, a beloved phrase from Paul, God shows His love for us in that while we were sinners, while we were enemies, while we were on the other side of the team, Christ died for us. Brothers, Christ's death is our hope because it secures for us the righteousness needed to be, this, be in this, to be citizens of the kingdom of God. And by this alien righteousness imputed to us, by repentance and faith, we live in eternal security from God's coming judgment. Brothers, have you heard this call of the gospel? Have you heeded the message of repentance? Oh, brothers, if so, take hope. His promised restoration, Christ's restoration of all things, is coming for all those who have come into His kingdom by faith alone in Christ alone. To summarize, Ezekiel was called as a servant to minister the word of repentance that God had revealed to him. But the people that he served They were a mixed bag. And this brings us to our second main point tonight. The people that God served, uh, that Ezekiel served, thee served. In any ministry of the word, there are, are always a people to be served. Case in point. No matter how faithful or ferocious they may be. As we've already seen, God considers Israel as a totally corrupt and rebellious people. I won't repeat what we've seen, but we we must remind ourselves of the constant nomenclature that God gives of Israel, a rebellious house. However, God is a faithful covenant Lord, and He sends His messenger to preach the word of repentance in order that He might preserve His remnant. In verses 18 to 22, which we read, we noted that there are basically two categories of people, the righteous and the unrighteous, or the wicked. And it's with these two categories of people I want to briefly focus our time on. In verses 18 and 19, the unrighteous, or the wicked, person is considered. As someone who has not turned from his sin, he will bear the penalty of it, whether he hears the message of repentance or not. This is not to imply that wickedness is based merely in a lack of knowledge concerning God's coming judgment. Even if they do hear the message of repentance, the wicked man must still respond accordingly to it. In Ezekiel's ministry, a person was only spared from judgment if they responded in repentance to God's coming judgment. Just because a person hears the message does not mean they will respond to the message. But the same is true for the righteous man in verses 20 and 21. For a righteous man, if he is not careful in the trials placed by the Lord, he will stumble into sin and perish for it. Spiritual pride 
was just as prevalent as it is today. Righteous men can easily lose the path if they are not constantly checking their own spiritual temperature. Ezekiel's message of repentance would act as a reminder for the righteous man not to become foolhardy in his status, but to be alert and on guard before God. With this said, not much more can be said here regarding this passage. Ezekiel's message of repentance is profoundly simple. If you respond in obedience, you were spared. But if you rejected the message, you received the coming judgment appropriately. Ultimately, it didn't matter your original standing as righteous or unrighteous. What mattered is how you responded to the message of repentance. It was very simple. Repent. Repent. One thing I want us to note about these terms, righteous and unrighteous, is that they do not necessarily speak about one's ultimate legal standing before God. For Ezekiel, the terms righteous and unrighteous or wicked were legal covenantal terms. Sometimes for a Christian, we get into our Christianese, right? And that finds its way into our pulpits. And because of this, we miss important nuances that our passage is making for us. For example, we do believe there is none righteous, as Scripture plainly states in Romans 3, verse 10. But often when the Old Testament speaks in these categories, righteous and unrighteous or wicked, they aren't speaking in regards to those who have been born again or, have been impu- or who have the imputed righteousness of Christ. They're not speaking in these categories. Rather, Ezekiel has in view the outward covenantal stipulations that were expected of all law-keeping citizens. To give a New Testament parallel, we could say that the Pharisees would be considered righteous, right? According to at least outward appearances and to the covenant stipulations, right? They were law-abiding citizens. They were righteous even though they were spiritually dead. This righteousness doesn't mean that they stood before God in judicial integrity. Judicial integrity. It just meant that they stood in judicial integrity in relation to the old covenant, the law covenant. That's all. It's, it's, uh, it's relational. It's in proportion to what we're talking about here. And what we're talking about here is the old covenant. The wicked, on the other hand, were those who were spiritually corrupt and it manifested itself in tangible law-breaking or unrighteousness. Finally, we recall that this is a summarizing intro for what the next six years of Ezekiel's ministry would look like. He would constantly be calling both the righteous and the unrighteous to repentance. This needs to be said. He's calling both the righteous and the unrighteous to repentance. And this is a continued and sustained ministry for this people. So with all this in mind, I think this point can help us navigate troubled waters when it comes to preaching the message of repentance in our day and age. Before I was the robust Reformed Baptist preacher that stands before you now, I was once a very well-mannered heathen who took advantage of my church and its culture surrounding repentance. Growing up in the church, I was never a problem child, right? You see, my mother used to get accolades for how well her children behaved in church and how kind we were. And I loved it too. Oh, I loved it. I loved being the favorite. By the time I entered into my church's youth group, I was already well respected by the youth leaders and the other parents for how I conducted myself in godly ways. 
You see, I was outwardly moral or a righteous young man, at least according to the world's standards and the standards of those in my church. Looking back, I could see how I differentiated from, how I was different from my peers. I was more righteous or had higher morals than some of my peers. That was fairly easy in my day. Now, we did have some young men in our church that were fairly wicked. I will quite plainly tell you, they were wicked. But it was only because, but it was only when they were really bad, when someone was truly, truly corrupt, that anyone would dare speak the word repentance. You see, in my tradition, my, my, my theologically liberal tradition, repentance was an antiquated word. It was rarely used, and when it was used, it was in reference to the most hardened and foul of sinners. And I kid you not, I remember putting this down in a journal when I first became saved. The first time I heard the term repentance in the first 12 years of my life was only on the following Sunday after 9-11 when the preacher referred it to the terrorist. That was the first time I heard the term repentance. I didn't hear it for another few years after that. Brothers, this is completely backwards in how the message of repentance is to be preached today. Repentance must be preached day by day, Lord's Day by Lord's Day. There should have never been a time when I did not understand the word repentance as a young man. And we should not make the same mistake here. It is very easy for us to assume that the seemingly righteous man or young men or children, that the one that may look like they have it all together, the good old boy that comes to worship, we must never assume that he doesn't need to hear the message of repentance. The message of repentance is not only for those in the mean streets of Jackson. The message of repentance is not only for those behind bars. The message of repentance isn't only for those actively despising and persecuting the church. The message of repentance is not only for those who have fell into big, obvious sins. No. The message of repentance is a message that must be preached everywhere, every day. In the suburbs, in our Christian homes, and even in our faithful churches. The message of repentance isn't only a message to turn from a particular sin or sinful behaviors, though it's no less than that. Repentance is a message to prick the heart of the spiritually apathetic. And I couldn't get this out of my head today, Pastor. It needs to prick the heart of the spiritually neutral. The message of repentance is also for those who desperately love Jesus. Repentance is for us, brothers, who want to defeat sin in our lives. Repentance is so much more than a wake-up call for unbelievers. It is a continued reminder that believers live before a holy God and that we are called to imitate Him in our holiness. Repentance is for those who have already heard and responded to the gospel as well. For Christians, this ministry of the word of repentance is used by God to move us further in our Christian walk to look more like Christ. It is the call to continue to deny ourselves, to crucify ourselves, and follow Christ. 
As Christians, we are called to live lives of repentance that is in step with the nature of the kingdom of God, the kingdom that we now imbibe as the church of God. And we are to keep it in step after King Jesus. Repentance is a tangible action that we do. Yes, it is something that we do. But repentance is also the orientation of our lives, just as faith in Christ is. Brothers, as Christians, we're never done with our repentance, at least not in this life. Just as we are never done with believing in Christ. So all this is to say is that we should never assume that whenever Pastor Wynn or I preach repentance to you, is that we know exactly what's going on in your lives. Nor should you assume that we want you to feel bad about something that you have no clue about. That's not the case. No. Of course we don't know the secret vices of your hearts. But we do know this. That Christians, those who know and love the Gospel, however seemingly righteous they are, or however flagrantly in sin they are, we all must continue to respond to the message of repentance unto God. To summarize this point, the ministry of the Word, even the Word of repentance, is not merely for those out there. It's for us in here. Do not despise the Word of repentance, brothers. Do not let vain notions of your own self-worth cloud you from seeing how much more godly growth is needed. Don't be lulled into a sense of security that you have no more need of repentance or rebuke or correction. That's folly. As Paul so clearly taught Timothy, the man of God. Paul, the man of God teaching another man of God. A man of God entrusted to preach the Word of God. Paul said this to Timothy, that the Word of God is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Brothers, this Word is our Word. Yes, we use it for our unbelievers. Yes, we call unbelievers with this word of repentance. But let us continue to repent. Brothers, may we be reproved and corrected by this same ministry of the word of God. And may God get all the glory from us continuing on in our repentance. We just keep going. Where sin comes up, where a stumbling block comes up, we know. We're warned. We're ready. Brothers, Keep going. Hear the message of repentance. With this said, I could keep talking about this point, but I want to move on. I want us now to transition to our final point for this evening. The sovereign. In the ministry of the word, the key component is not the servant, nor is it the served but it's the sovereign who gives the word. In Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 22, to the first half of verse 24, we get a repeat of what we saw in, with Ezekiel's commission. Ezekiel goes to the place of God's choosing, and Yahweh's glory is revealed again. Verse 22, And the hand of the Lord was upon me there, and he said to me, Arise, go into the valley, and there I will speak with you. So I arose and went into the valley, and behold... The glory of God stood there, like the glory that I had seen by the Chabar Canal, and I fell on my face. But the Spirit entered into me, and he set me on my feet. 
Again, Ezekiel responds to Yahweh as he did beforehand. He beholds the vision of God's terrifying glory and he responds in fear and worship, naturally so. But yet again, God establishes and secures him as his prophet. The Spirit of God sets Ezekiel on his feet. He's prepared. However, Yahweh gives specific instructions for Ezekiel at this point. And we should remember that these instructions would become the normative practice for the next six years. Let me say that again. These instructions that we're about to read, these would become the normative practice for Ezekiel for the next six years. This is the summarizing section of Ezekiel. In Hebrew text, we like to summarize at the back for us English speakers. They like to summarize at the front end. It's kind of like a thesis statement, statement almost. This is what the word ministry is going to look like under God's sovereign control. In verse 24, the last half of it, uh, 24b, Yahweh commands Ezekiel, Go shut yourself in your house. And you, O son of man, behold, cords will be placed upon you, and you shall be bound with them, so that you cannot go out among the people. And I will make your tongue clean to the roof of your mouth, so that you shall be mute and unable to reprove them, for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak with you, and I will, open your, I, I will open your mouth, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. He who will hear, let him hear. And he who will refuse to hear, let him refuse. For they are a rebellious house. We see two things happen to Ezekiel in this final section. He is bound by cords in his home, and he is rendered mute by Yahweh. Now, for some readers, this passage seems strange because God literally just commanded Ezekiel to be a watchman to warn Israel audibly. But now Yahweh is stopping him from speaking. So what do we make of this? What's happening? Again, the answer lies in verse 27. When I, Yahweh, speak, I will open your mouth, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. We are to understand the passage like this. Ezekiel Ezekiel would only give a warning or reprove Israel if and only if God intended it. Like Ezekiel knew, uh, since Ezekiel knew of the coming destruction, he would constantly be begging the people to turn from from their sins and be prepared. But Yahweh's intention is to afflict His people with covenant curses. This is why Yahweh binds Ezekiel's body with cords in his home and why He shuts Ezekiel's mouth. So then, Ezekiel would only be free in the next six years when he proclaimed the oracles that are uh, present in chapters 4 to 24. He would only be able to preach the judgments of God's covenant curses. We are to see that Ezekiel's word ministry had a finality or an urgency to it. Ezekiel would only open his mouth. He would only open his mouth to speak the word of God, but Ezekiel could not go on to exhort or to beg the people to listen. Yahweh wanted the people to heed this message of repentance simply because it came from God, not because Ezekiel was so magnificent or so uh, laudable or because he, he made a good point Yahweh wanted the people to heed this message of repentance simply because it was God Almighty speaking through Ezekiel. So then Ezekiel was bound only to speak God's sovereign word and he could speak no more. 
There was no more time for dialogue between God and the people. Judgment was coming to Israel no matter what. The only thing Israel could now do is to listen to God's sovereign message of repentance and respond accordingly. Notice in verse 27, we get this final phrase that encompasses what the next six years would look like for Ezekiel. He who will hear, let him hear. He who will refuse to hear, let him refuse. For they are a rebellious house. For those who, re- who would recognize God's prophet and his message, they would listen attentively to Ezekiel, and so they would live. But for those who refused to hear the message of repentance, they would refuse both Ezekiel and Yahweh, and they would experience the effects of it. Brothers, I want us to close our night thinking upon this reality. In this section, it's fairly easy for us to see God's providential work at play. From this passage in the previous two chapters, we see that God is the one who confronts Ezekiel. He is the one who establishes Ezekiel as his prophet. He is the one who will cause the judgments to take place. He is the one orchestrating all these events and causes to unfold according to his eternal decree. And so in our passage tonight, we also see Yahweh cause Ezekiel to become mute by God's own choosing. All of these are providential, or what we would call almighty acts, that are in accords with God's eternal decree. In Reformed circles, we, are, we would call these biblical truth a sign of God's sovereignty, right? That is, that, that this is God Almighty at play. He's the Almighty King. As the Almighty King, God does exactly what He wants. But consider this, brothers. The term sovereignty or sovereign, hasn't always acted as a synonym for God's providential works in history or anything like that. You see, the term sovereignty or sovereign is a term to describe God's right. It's a term to describe God's right as the king. As the sovereign, Yahweh had the right as, one, as a king has right over a people. So when theologians say that God is sovereign, the idea of God being absolutely in control is back there. His providential works are back there. But that's not the main idea. The main idea is that God has the right, the proper right as a king king, to do as he pleases. In the case of our passage, God had the right to do as he pleased. God had the kingly right to refuse his people from explaining themselves. God had the kingly right to refuse any further complaints. God had the kingly right to bring destruction as he saw fit. As the creator of the heavens and earth and as the covenant Lord of Israel, he had the unique, divine, kingly right to exactly do as he pleased with his people. So with this kingly right in mind, with this sovereign right in view, Imagine the audacity of Israel. Imagine the audacity of Israel to refuse, to refuse to listen to God's message of repentance. Those final words that we read tonight should sting our ears, brothers. He who refuses to hear, let him refuse, for they are rebellious house. 
God is, the so- God is the one who has the sovereign right to do as he pleases. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. But this rebellious house would dare refuse to respond to God's word of repentance? Israel was God's covenant people. They were his conquered and beloved people. And now they dare refuse his message? Moreover, brothers, again, this is a message of repentance. As we've seen, this is not mere doom and gloom upon a people. The curses were meant to prompt the people to repentance and restoration. But yet these people would still have the audacity. They would have the audacity to deny their king. They would reject their sovereign. They would reject and refuse the sovereign who had the divine right over their lives. Brothers, though this seems so heinous to our ears, it should not surprise us, especially in light of what we saw this morning. Sinful, rebellious men will despise and forsake their God. As it was in Ezekiel's day, the same is true for us. Jesus Christ is both the creator and sustainer of the cosmos. Jesus Christ is the one seated upon the throne of God as the one who has conquered sin and death. Jesus Christ is the covenant Lord of his church. As Paul so eloquently summarizes this reality in Colossians 1. And please, if you would turn there with me, let us gaze upon the text together. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Colossians 1. Verse 15, Christ, He, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body of the church. He is the covenant Lord. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Divine right displayed before us in the text of Scripture. Our Christ has the divine right to, re- to have His message be received. He, had the, he has the divine right to have His gospel be received by all. And yet sinful men will refuse Him that right. The Apostle Paul knew this reality for himself. And he suffered for it. He knew that sinful men would deny Him. Brothers, the Apostle knew that he would suffer to proclaim Christ's sovereign right against these simple rebels. Yet he was called to serve as Ezekiel did. But in God's eternal goodness, we must never lose sight of this glorious truth, brothers and sisters. In God's eternal goodness and his eternal purposes, his elect will respond and hear the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For those who would hear the message of Christ and believe, God's people, for those whom God had elected before the foundations of the earth to reveal the glory of Christ, we, brothers and sisters, we, we are called to the hope of glory, which is Christ Jesus Himself. 
As Christians, we are now those who do not refuse Christ's sovereign right over our lives. Christ has the right to our worship. Christ has the right to our lives. Christ has the right to our hearts. And brothers, as we think upon these realities, as we go away from this place tonight, as we leave tonight hearing this word of repentance that Israel so desperately needed to hear, may this be on our minds. Brothers, repent. Repent and repent. Repent from your simple apathy to God's sovereignty. Repent from your neutrality. Repent from, you, from holding something other than Jesus Christ, our God, your God, our Lord. Repent from holding anything other than Him as the object of your affection and worship. Oh, brothers, we do need to hear the message of God's repentance. May we as Christians, as those who have been called in God's eternal plan and purposes in Christ Jesus, hear that gospel message. May we hear the gospel call to repent and believe the gospel. Oh, brothers, may we repent. Our God is on the throne. He has divine sovereign right. Do not refuse him his right to worship. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are the sovereign that you have given us the ministry of the word, that we would know and hear this word of repentance, and that we would turn from our vain pursuits, from our vanity, and that continued sin in our lives, and that we as Christians who hear and understand the message of the gospel, that we would respond in faith, in adoration, and in worship for our God, Christ. Oh, Father, help us now as we come before you in singing your praises. And Lord, may you be worshipped this evening in spirit and in truth. We ask this in your Son's holy and perfect and glorious name. Amen.